I'm Alejandro Melian. And I'm Daniel Chucastillo. Welcome to Talking Culture. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge that this podcast is produced on the traditional territory of the Ganyan Gahaga, on the land known as Chiochiage. We recognize the Ganyan Gahaga as the rightful stewards of this land. So, I don't think it comes as a surprise to anyone, but today we're both talking about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Yes, I mean, I sort of figured we, how could we not talk about it? You know, it seems like there are a lot of thoughts all over the place about this invasion and... Um, I do think that it is valuable taking a second in, in this context to just recognize it um, and to talk about it a bit. But maybe because there's so much media about this right now, we both wanted to try to discuss the issue from different perspectives. Um, so, you know, what are you bringing to the table today, Daniel? So on my side, I'm going to be discussing how the Russian media has been portraying mm -hmm. um, the events in Ukraine. Here I have to put the first caveat that is very important, which is to say <laughs> I don't speak Russian, I don't read Russian. So all the information that I have is obviously coming from different English-speaking sources that mm -hmm. have translated sort of the the original sources but there's that to be said <laughs> and also obviously as we will um find out there are very different kinds of media there's the state-sponsored media and yeah. there's those independent ones and and you Alejandra what are you going to be talking about briefly um yeah I'm going to be uh sort of doing a bit of a comparison just about the way that the West, in big air quotes there, has been talking about um, the invasion of Ukraine versus other, other occupations and invasions, such as the Israeli occupation of Palestine. Okay, this is going to be a good one. Um, so I'll jump right in. So one of the first and most notorious things that the government, the Russian government has done is to ban any reference to the conflict in Ukraine that uses the words war or even conflict. Um, so any allusion that it is, uh, that it is, that this is an invasion even cannot be done. You have to call it according to the Russian government as a special peacekeeping operation, which is what some people have called a, an Orwellian sort of move, like a 1984 kind of uh, strategy. Yeah. Some so, double speak right there, for some sure. Some double speak. <laughs> yeah. So no invasion, nothing happening other than a peacekeeping, special peacekeeping operation. And then we have the narrative that has been pushed as the why for this special peacekeeping operation. On the one hand, you have people like Dmitry Peskov, who is a, a Kremlin spokesperson, who says that this operation is to denazify the country. And interestingly, this denazification rhetoric has been used not only by, obviously, this person, but by Putin in many, many of his speeches that talk about uh, Ukraine. They call it a Nazi junta, 
And essentially, they also tied with this idea of the genocide that is happening, according to them, in Ukraine, of the Russian-speaking peoples. And along these lines, the government has issued to school teachers materials that describe this genocide in historical terms. So interestingly, one of the lines that has been pushed through Russian media, uh, state-sponsored media, is the idea that historically, from six, 1654 to the 1917, Ukraine was only a specific area of modern-day Ukraine. After 1917 onwards, different Russian leaders such as Lenin, Stalin and Khrushchev gave Ukraine certain areas, which Putin now considers as legitimately Russian because of our gifts. And so all they're doing really is kind of reclaiming what historically belonged to Russia and sort of leaving real, quote unquote, Ukraine in the middle. Mm. Um, this has been done specifically in schools because a lot of the opposition that's coming to the war in Russia is from younger generations. Mm -hmm. A lot of younger generations who do not necessarily use state-sponsored media as their first source. They look into Telegram. Um, they look into um, into the internet to try to find news that do not come from within the state. Mm -hmm. So I also brought some interesting quotes from some of the Russian newscasters. So for example, there is Rosilla One, whose um, spokesperson says that Ukraine has always been just a tool for the Western states to restrain Russia. The US is forcing a war with Russia and Europe. So it's literally echoing Putin's rhetoric. Mm -hmm. And then, more frighteningly, on February 27th, the same guy said, Russian nuclear capabilities guaranteed the destruction of the US and NATO as well. Putin warned them, don't try to frighten Russia. And finally, the same Rosilla One network says, finally, the same Rosilla One network has been misspreading misinformation about civilian casualties because they say that Ukrainian civilians and cities are treated with real care. So I think this gives us a fairly good overall picture, which is that older generations whose main source of information is the official government sources have a very different picture of what's going on um, than younger generations. And then with the mandate that happened on Friday, last Friday, which is saying that if you spread misinformation, you could go to prison for up to 15 years. Misinformation on this, like from Putin's point of view, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> misinformation from the point of view of like, call it an invasion and you might get 15 years. Right. Yeah. So this mandate has forced independent outlets such as Rain TV to close down because they cannot any longer refer to the war in any other terms other than the state. And this is something that I found fascinating and also in a strange way inspiring. Um, Rain TV, when they mm -hmm. closed down on Friday, they left a loop of the Swan Lake. Yeah. And 
that's a reference to the 1991 coup d'etat that failed, which also forced all the broadcasters to play the Swan Lake on a loop, which is, you know, just a way of saying maybe this will happen in the same way. So this will fail and some change will come from this. Like this might not be as bleak as it seems or remain as bleak as it seems. Uh, so a very interesting way of going. Um, and finally, there's other sources of news such as Medusa, uh, but those work mostly through the internet and a lot of the people that work for them have also had to, you know, stay at home over fear of being, um, of, of being sent to prison. Yeah. So ultimately just the information is just not getting to people. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the, the editor of Medusa says to finish this section, um, that there is a saying in Russia that is, there's a conflict between your fridge and your television. <laughs> so right now the television is winning, but as the economic sanctions start to take effect, your apple might cost twice what it used to cost, and then your fridge is going to speak louder. Yeah. So even if you're not getting the right information, you're going to get a sense that something is not quite what they've been telling you. Uh, yeah, and it's so scary because, you know, I've read of Russian soldiers that were really confused when arriving in Ukraine because of being told that they were there to help the, re the Ukrainian people liberate themselves and that being part of why a lot of troops were so unprepared when they arrived there because they had been told that they were going to help these people not fight actively against these people there so you see how like the misinformation is even in like the even in the troops themselves it's everywhere and so after all that um i'm really curious to know what's on the other side i mean i have an idea but what have yeah. you found out Alejandra? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously we've been talking about Russian media, um, but I also, even though it's really terrible what is happening there and the way that things are being spun, I also don't think that we can look at our own media sources as completely, you know, neutral all the time. And we also spin things and we also have rhetoric that goes around, you know, world, world news. Um, so I was really inspired by... An Al Jazeera opinion piece um, written by Mohammed Rafiq Mawesh, in which he compares the international reaction to Russia's occupation of Ukraine um, to the reaction, or I guess maybe like the lack of reaction, to Israel's occupation of Palestine. Um, in this piece, mm. he talks about, you know, the rhetoric around Ukraine is that the fighters are being extremely brave. And they're defending their land and, you know, they're heroes and we have so much support as, as there, there should be support for sure. Um, but when Palestinians use the same tactics that a lot of Ukrainians are using, like, you know, making Molotov, Molotov cocktails, um, for example, or blowing up bridges, you know, things that I, I read like a very, it almost felt like fluff PC article about these women making Molotov cocktails in their in their basements and like 
And I've never seen that happening in any other context of like an article of a thing like that being painted by American media as like, oh, look at like how great this is. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it was weird to read. Um, and when these things happen in other places like Palestine, for example, they're considered acts of terror. You know, it's beyond the rhetoric around the resistance. It's also the legal and the physical support that governments are giving Ukraine. Um, in the article, I'm just going to read you a quote. He says, We learned that despite what we have been experiencing in our homeland, international law does exist and indeed functions. States do have the capacity and the will to take action when a people invade the land of another. We learned that sanctions can be used swiftly and efficiently against aggressors and that sanctioning a country for its international law violations is not necessarily a racist action. We learned that civilian casualties are not just numbers, but actual living, breathing people who genuinely matter. And we also learned from politicians, pundits, analysts, and even our very own oppressors and occupiers, he's talking about the Israeli state there, that armed resistance to occupation is not terrorism, but a right. Hmm. And so, you know, I've I've seen this hypocrisy pointed out a lot on social media, so it's like it's not like I'm raising anything groundbreaking here, but I don't know. I wanted to ask a question to you. Um, is this about race? You know, like, is it simply racism that causes this type of hypocrisy? Or do you think there's there's something else going on there as well? I mean, to me, it kind of echoes, actually, what we were discussing last month regarding the Freedom Convoy, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is almost a similar narrative where when certain kinds of people do protests that block highways and block the economic flow of a city, um, it's not as condemned as when other kinds of people do it. And here we're obviously referring to the indigenous peoples in Canada who whenever they protest, it is seen as a disruption that goes sort of out of bounds of what is reasonable, at least as defined by the state. Obviously, there is this hypocritical approach that I think echoes what's going on in in Ukraine. On the other hand, I think there's, there's also a political dimension in the sense that the United States was instrumental in creating Israel. Yeah, and continues so, to be instrumental in their in their operation yeah <laughs> exactly yeah so i i would imagine that that's one of the reasons why they would be reticent to you know criticize israel in any big way because you know it's akin to criticizing themselves um that's true. That's true. And and then also, you know, the history of the United States and Russia is a complicated one. And it's not one that's always or even ever been a positive um, out or, or uncomplicated allyship. So I think that, yeah, I think you're right that politically, it's also a lot easier for the U.S. to be like, bad Russia than mm-hmm. it is for, exactly. for other places. Hmm. Exactly. The other concern that I had as I was doing my research that was in the back of my mind is the echoes that I also found with the election uh, that just happened in the in the United States, right? Like with Trump, who was literally spreading the misinformation that the campaign was a fraud, 
all these issues that we had uh, that we had just recently, relatively recently, do echo this sort of way in which the discourse of misinformation is being used and weaponized kind of on both sides. Yeah. And that creates a lot of uncertainty for both, for people who align with both points of view. I mean, as you were saying, we have, we can point out to to instances in which the narratives that we are given are not as neutral as they seem to be, or as they portray themselves to be. But also on the other side, I mean, I, I imagine that for certain groups within Russia, the trust that they place in the sources of the government sort of allows them to label other things as misinformation, which is which is the same discourse that we use yeah. to fight misinformation. Yeah. So we get into this entangled <laughs> problem of how how do you discern if you're not in the ground? So like if you're not literally in Ukraine right now, looking at how things are going, how you decide where to put your trust. Yeah. Um, and what trust sources to trust. No, for sure. I think that that's a really good point. And I think that one thing that I've been really uncomfortable with in watching this all unfold is just how, um, I don't know, how righteous the, I hate using the term the West, but like how righteous the West has been in terms of their... Um, their reactions or their opinions or like their view on the matter when even, you know, in, in, like you pointed out, our own media histories are complicated and not always so truthful. And our own military histories are terrible and have caused, you know, so much destruction historically. So yeah, this like righteousness, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, on, yeah. you know, in, ter- in all of the areas is, complicated because on one hand yeah i do want to denounce russia for its actions but on the other hand Mm -hmm. we've done many of the same things in many places yeah and i think it's interesting how we're piggybacking on the legacy of the second world war yeah in which i mean putin is actually doing a lot of references to the second world war effort of russia to fight against nazism and wrap this action in uh, in an aura of heroics of the heroism of that time mm-hmm. which is strange because the west also borrows from that history and and in portraying themselves as righteous as well right because they also fought these events so i, I take your point for mm-hmm. sure that it is disturbing how much this has been turned also into a narrative of righteousness mm-hmm. On both sides. Yeah, you know, like, I'm, the last thing I'm saying is that Russia is right, you know, for sure, definitely <laughs> not. Um, but I think that there, we, need to, we need to take what we're saying about Russia seriously and put those same expectations and limitations on, on our, our own governments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, well, <laughs> um, I guess that's it for this week. Um, thank you so much, Danielle. This is great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, This episode was produced by me, Alejandro Menian, with music by Justin Kober, and the cover art is by Sofia Menian. You can find a link to the sources cited in this episode in our show notes and as well as on our website. 
Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And come talk culture with us on Twitter at TalkCulturePod or Instagram at TalkCulturePodcast and check out our website TalkingCulture.ca to pitch an idea or hear more from the McGill Anthro community.